Like I said, I've entitled this message today, God With Us. Again, we'll be looking at Psalms 137 through 139. And I was reminded of a quote by St. Augustine, who in his confessions famously wrote this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And that's really the story of human nature. If you look at why human beings are the way that they are, it's because they were created to be in fellowship with God, and they're not in fellowship with God. And so they go searching sex, drugs, rock and roll, everything else, trying to find a way to feel that God-shaped vacuum in their hearts, but nothing fits. And so even for you and I, why we find ourselves to be restless to a certain extent, even as believers, is because we're not yet face-to-face with God. We're not yet in his presence. But I want to remind you, and I want to remind me today, that what God wants for us is to be with us. This has always been his desire. This is always what he's wanted. He's wanted us to find our rest in him. And so I just want to remind you a few things from the scriptures that, that, to remind us that God made us to be with him. When we see our first parents, Adam and Eve, way back in the garden, what happened is God would come walking with them in the garden in the cool of the evening. His desire was to have a regular time of fellowship with them. And we know that after the curse came and the fall of man, because of those things, then there's been a separation. There's been a break in that relationship. But it's been God's desire to always bring people back into relationship with himself. You, You see this when God reaches out to a man by the name of Abram in Genesis chapter 12. And seeks to make something of him so that he might create a people to be a light unto him, a light unto the world, so that more and more people might be brought into relationship with him. We see this with God and the Israelites in the wilderness. When there's God manifests himself as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, but he, he manifests himself above the Ark of the Covenant so that he might be with them. And in fact, when he threatens not to be with him, Moses says, well, I don't want to go. <laughs> If you're not going to go with us, why should we go? Then we fast forward to the New Testament, and one of the titles of Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Jesus chose his 12 disciples, we're told he chose them that they might be with him. And then we have the, the, what we're looking forward to in the new heaven, the new earth, we're told that God himself will be with them and be their God. And then, by the way, along the way, Up until that time, between the disciples being brought to Jesus and that final new heaven, new earth, what are we given? We're given the Holy Spirit so that we won't be left as orphans, but that God may be with us. So this is is God's desire for us. Why did he make us? Not because he was bored, not because he needed really inefficient people to get done what he wanted to get done. He made us so that he might be with us. That's the goal. And so if we can kind of think about the things that you and I are going through on a daily basis and like, why is God allowing this? And why is this happening? What's going on? Ultimately, in his sovereign purposes, he's drawing us closer to himself. He wants to have relationship with us. So that's that's the heart behind this message. And so as we work our way through these three chapters in the Psalms today, please remember that's God's desire. Okay, God's desire is that you would be with him. So Psalm 137 We'll move rather quickly through this first psalm. And it's written after the return from the Babylonian captivity. So it's after the the, uh, Judah has returned after the Babylonian captivity. But you know how it is after you go through something really difficult, sometimes there's some things to still work through. 
There's some things that are difficult, some things that you're holding on to. And so we see this, this kind of frustration boiling over for the psalmist as he thinks back to what happened in the captivity. Verses one through four, it says, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it, for there were those who carried us away captive, asked, us for, asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And so this psalmist is remembering what it was like to be in captivity. So this psalmist must have been one of the ones who was able to go back to Jerusalem after the captivity was over, but was remembering what it was like to be in captivity was remembering what it was like to, to be far from home, to be away from the homeland, to, to weep in that way, and then to be mocked by the Babylonians who said, hey, you guys used to sing when you were in Jerusalem. Why don't you sing a little song for us? And so you guys are familiar with this. You've watched enough sporting events to know when one team beats another team, and then, then some people on the winning team can't help mocking the losers. And that's how it feels, this mockery here. And so he's saying, well, well, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I can't do that. I'm not in the right place. And then, as we see in this next part, verses five through nine, we see a cry of vengeance. Notice, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. So it's a remembrance of Jerusalem, this desire for Jerusalem. So, so again, it, it could be that they've already come back or it could be a psalm that is, is, was written actually while still in captivity. There's debate among commentators. And then he says, remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, who are to be destroyed, Happy the one who repays you as the one who served us. Happy the one who takes and dashes your little ones against the rock. And so we read that and we say, yikes. This is a radical thing here, right? So, so basically this person who is either still in captivity, has returned from captivity, is basically saying, take down all these enemies. Take down all these who came against us and then take down the Babylonians, and we see something so radical in verses eight and nine where it says, happy is the one who takes your little ones, your children, and dashes them against the rock. This is hard imagery. And as I was listening to a message by Matt Chandler this past week, and he, he mentioned the phrase, the Bible is a grimy book. And it's true. Why is the Bible a grimy book? What he meant by that is it's a story of real people. And, and so we, sitting in this place, you know, somewhat comfortable in this room, maybe we don't have a lot of horrible trouble going on, we look at them and say, oh, that's horrible. But if you're someone who has been taken captive, you're someone who's seen your loved ones brutally murdered, you're going to have some of this passion. You're going to have some of this desire. So it's a radical thing, but, but, but what are we to make of it? What are we to do with it? Well, we know from the New Testament that we're called to love our enemies, we know that that's what we're called to. We're not called to have this sort of attitude. We are called to love our enemies and God has given us his Holy Spirit to enable us in that moment when we're to love our enemies to love them, 
But at the same time, we also must remind ourselves that God's judgment will fall on the unrepentant. That those who choose to consistently reject God's free offer of grace will be left to be judged for their sins. And so it's, there's a tension for us. But we must, as we read these things, we must consider, think about those things, understand that none of us are above this emotion. To understand that none of us are above that place of saying, I just wish God would just destroy my enemies. We're not above that, but at the same time to say, God's called us to something higher. God's called us to something better. We see a couple of examples of this. Most famously, Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But then we see a guy by the name of Stephen, the first martyr of the church, that his, he's being stoned to death, prays to God and says, God, don't hold this sin against them. So it's possible. It's possible for us to, to love in that way. All right, let's move on to Psalm 138 now. We're going to see a, a psalm of God's faithfulness written by David. And we start in verse 1, and it says, I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. And I want to camp on this idea of I will praise you with my whole heart for just a minute because it really speaks of David desiring to have a wholehearted devotion to the Lord, a wholehearted devotion. Now, this reminds us of what Jesus classified as the greatest commandment. Jesus said the greatest commandment was found, or Jesus said it for us in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, when he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That that's the greatest commandment. And let me just say for you and I, we're, we're looking for an easier life. The reason why when we don't know how to do something, we go to YouTube to try to figure it out is because we want life to be easier. The reason why there's such thing as technology is because we want life to be easier. That's why I think it's always funny when people want to go camping, because I was like, isn't that what your ancestors did? Like, that's how they live life when they didn't have houses? <laughs> and, and so for us to go camping, we're like, I wonder what it would be like to like, not have a house anymore. Uh, and that's kind of what we do. But, but in reality, the reason why we have houses is because we want life to be easier. Okay? So I want to give you a life hack for you and for me. Our life is easier when we have an undivided heart. That's, that's the best life hack you and I can have. The best life hack we can have, the, the, the number one way we can make our life easier is to have an undivided heart, to only be about the Lord. To say, no matter what, no matter the situation, I'm just going to do what the Lord wants me to do. That really takes away so many of these decisions that we have to make. I remember hearing years ago, I think it was a message by John Corson, and he was talking about a guy who was a world champion handball player. And you say, well, that's great, but here's the catch. He was a world champion handball player, but he only had one arm. He was a world champion handball player, and he only had one arm. And so you kind of like, well, how can that happen? And they asked him, what makes you so good? He said, I never have to decide which arm to use. <laughs> He knows no matter what shot it's going to be, he only had one arm to use, so he's never indecisive. He's never thinking about what to do. What about you and I? What if we said, no matter the situation, I'm just going to do what the Lord tells me to do through his word? That we don't have to be indecisive. We don't have to be deciding, well, in this circumstance, in this situation, among these people, well, maybe I'll do this. No, we've already decided ahead of time, I'm going to be undivided. I'm just going to do the things that God tells me to do. And maybe for the rest of the world, it looks like I only have one arm. 
but I always know which arm to use, the arm that serves the Lord. That, that's what I'm going to do. And so if we've already made the commitment to follow God, no matter the circumstance, our decisions become so much simpler. There's all kinds of things we just don't consider because we're just saying that's outside the will of God. Most of what's advertised on TV will just say, not for me. <laughs> I've already decided to follow the Lord. Now tied into this, we see the next part of verse one where, where um, David says, before the gods, I will sing praises to you. Now, it's interesting, that word gods in the Hebrew is Elohim, and it can refer to a lot of different things. It can refer to God or false gods, or it can refer to human judges or rulers, depending on the, on the context. And so different commentators have different ideas. I believe in this verse, he's actually speaking about like human judges or human rulers. I think that's what David is referring to. And so I'm going to take it that way. So if he's referring to human kings here, I think what David is saying is, I'm willing to worship God before the kings around me. I'm willing to worship the true God before human rulers. And so I think there's an application for you and I that we should be willing to praise the Lord before human rulers and authorities. So often we find ourselves in trouble because we're like, oh, in this circumstance, I don't really want to serve God because these powers that be, they don't accept God and I don't know what I should do. But, but I think it would be wise to have an undivided, undivided heart and say, I'm just going to praise God no matter what. Now, we have to be careful because when we say praise, we may think, well, praise means singing and I'm surely not going to sing a song to the Lord in front of a human king or authority. That, that, well, that's not exactly what I mean by praising the Lord. I mean it, praising God in the sense of acknowledging God, of obeying God before them. Um, if you want to see what this looks like, I would encourage you, if it's been a while since you've read the book of Acts, please go back and read the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the most wonderful place for seeing what does it look like to obey God before hostile authorities. And it's simply this. The apostles just go about their business they witness about Christ, uh, God does miraculous things through them, and then whenever they're told to stop, the, the, they say to the authorities, hey, you judge between you and God if we should obey you more than God, but we're just going to say the things we've seen and heard, we're going to obey God. That's all they do. And guess what? They get imprisoned. They get beaten. They get killed. So what? They actually, by doing that, they grow closer to God. And guess what? When they get killed for their faith, they get the, the fulfillment of their desire. They get to be in the presence of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so uh, the, the thing for us is just to have an undivided heart. I'm going I'm to just obey God. I'm going to recognize God. I'm going to serve God no matter the circumstance. All right, let's move on to verse 2. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word above all your name. So I'm looking at that first part real quick where he says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. All right, so we don't worship God for no reason. We don't worship God because God said, worship me. And we're like, all right, well, he's really big. Let me just worship him. No, we worship God because of who he is, because of his loving kindness. His loving kindness means his faithful love. I, I find this life often very discouraging because I spend too much time looking at myself. 
And as I look at myself and as I think about myself and I think about why I should be further along than I am now and why am I thinking these thoughts and doing these things and I messed up that conversation, that is just a cesspool. It's just a mess. And so, well, the reason why I get so discouraged and depressed because I'm looking at the wrong person because I'm not faithful, because I'm not good. But guess what? I need to get my eyes off of myself and to the Lord because he's faithful. He's good every day. And so because of his loving kindness, we're told here, that means his faithful love, we should praise him. And then also we praise him because of his truth. He is the truth, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And and so we worship God because who he is. And we've talked about this recently. We'll talk about it again. If you and I find ourselves in a place where we're not worshiping God, most likely we've lost sight of him. There's some aspect of him, there's some of his greatness, his glory that we are just not seeing clearly. Something has obscured our vision and we need to turn from whatever it is that's obscuring our vision, get our eyes back on him and we'll see praise will rise up once again. Now, this is a very, very interesting second part of verse two where he says, you have magnified your word above all your name. I kind of wrestled with this. This has always been a verse that I've enjoyed and, and I thought about it. And I was like, well, what's the big idea? How can I explain what's going on here? Here's what I think the second half of verse two means. That when he says he's magnified his word above all his name, that, that God will do all he said he will do. His word is as trustworthy as his name. Okay, so God's name is trustworthy. If you go through the Bible, you'll see there's a lots of names of God. Right, lots of different Hebrew names of God, and you know, God, God, our Redeemer, and God, our Savior, and God, our Provider, and all of these names. And so, all of those are important because they speak about aspects of who He is, His character, His ability, His nature. So, when God says, "I've magnified My Word above My name," he, what He's saying essentially here is that I'm going to do everything I said I was going to do. Okay, just as you can trust My character and My nature, so you can trust what I say. My word is my bond. And why is that helpful for us? Well, it's helpful for us because God has made a lot of promises to us that have not yet been fulfilled. God has made a lot of promises about our future, about our eternity, about our relationships that we still wait on the fulfillment of. And so by understanding that God's magnified his word above his name means I can trust who God's character is. I can trust everything he said he's gonna do that though it looks dark today, I know the sunrise is coming. I know the fulfillment of this promise is going to happen. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. He says, for all the promises of God in Jesus are yes, and in Jesus, amen. So we can trust that God is going to do all these things because he's going to do all these things through Jesus Christ. And so we can trust those promises of God. They're going to be fulfilled not because you're awesome, not because I'm awesome, but because Jesus is awesome because Jesus is the faithful one, because he's the guarantor of those promises. Let's move on to verse three. It says, in the day when I cried out, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. I love this. Answered prayer emboldens the believer. Answered prayer emboldens the believer. To to give you um, uh, a little story related to this, would you turn to Acts chapter four for just a moment? Acts chapter 4, I'm going to look at verses 23 through 31. So the context is um, Peter, and, and, uh, Peter and John, I believe, they've healed the guy. Um, the ruling authorities don't particularly like the fact that they've healed this guy. 
They don't like the fact that this Jesus whom they crucified, these guys are saying has risen from the dead. He's now the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And, and so they're trying to put an end to all this. And so they've been, rele- they've, they've been threatened and released. And so we, we pick up the story here in um, Acts chapter 4, starting verse 23. It says, I'm being let go. Okay, so, so Peter and John had been let go. They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And so they basically threatened him, right? Don't, don't preach anymore about Jesus. And so when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Okay, so they start by, by praising God as creator, recognizing him as creator, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They're quoting Psalm chapter two there. It says, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant your servants that we would just go to a place where we could drink lemonade and never have trouble again. Is that what it says in your translation? No, good, good, I'm glad. No, verse 29, now Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Notice what they're saying. They're saying, Lord, give us the boldness to do the very thing that got us arrested. Give us the boldness to keep doing what you've told us to do no matter the consequences. And notice how the Lord answers it. And when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Uh, this is a guarantee from Scripture. If you go home today and you, in, in the quietness between you and the Lord, say, Lord, I just want to be a bold witness for you. Wherever you've called me to, and, and kind of my own personality, and my own you know, um, sphere, of inf- sphere of influence, Lord, just... Just give me that boldness. God's going to answer that prayer. I can't guarantee that he's going to shake the room. He could, right? But the fact of the matter is God wants to answer that prayer. God wants to embolden us. God wants to give that because it's about him. It's not about us. And so uh, a beautiful picture of God answering that prayer from believers. So God wants to do that kind of thing in our lives as well. All right, let's turn back, if you would, to Psalm 138, looking at verses 4 and 5. It says, all the kings of the earth shall praise you, O Lord, when they hear the words of your mouth. Yes, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. I personally believe this is a prophecy of the millennial kingdom, um, that whenever Jesus rules and reigns in Jerusalem, that these kings will come together and they'll praise him. Verse six, though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly. But the proud he knows from afar. This is, this is a, a, a beautiful verse, a reminder for us. Sometimes we treat God like we treat human authorities. And, and human authorities or human um, popular people, they're limited. And so the higher they get, the less people have access to them. That's not how God works. Okay, so, so God is not so high that he can't reach down to the low. In fact, scripture makes clear that God wants to reach out to the lowly, that though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly. He thinks about the lowly. He wants to reach out to the lowly. 
We're told in the scripture that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So the lower you are, the closer God will be with you. It's whenever you make yourself tall, you make yourself high, you exalt yourself, then God says, I'm going to have to humble you. But if you humble yourself, he will exalt you. So it's really, really important for us because you think, well, I'm just so low and I'm nobody and why would God talk to me? Well, just understand that's exactly the kind of person he wants to talk to. That's the kind of person he wants to reach out to. I love how Dallas Willard put it in his book, Hearing God. He wrote, how hard it is for us to come to an adequate conception of the lowliness of God of how his greatness is precisely what makes him able, available, and ready to hear and speak personally with his creatures. God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. God is is in a place where he can reach out to you. So the fact is not worrying about, well, well, am I too low for God to speak to? You're never too low for God to speak to. You can be too high for God to speak to, but you can never be too low for God to speak to. And so just put yourself in a position and say, God, would you speak to me? Would you, would you reach out? Would you regard me? But we see here in the end of verse six, but he, the proud he, he knows from afar, the idea is the Lord doesn't have to get too close to the proud person to see that there's a problem there, <laughs> okay? So, so he comes near, God comes near the lowly, but the proud he's far from. Verses seven and eight, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And so as I just look at verses seven and eight, I don't want to spend much time here because it really reminds me of Psalm 23. It really kind of has that feeling of Psalm 23 about the Lord being with us and, and you know, through the Lord providing for us and the Lord being with us through difficulties. And, and so what I take from verses 7 and 8 as I look at it is simply that if you're a believer, the Lord is going to see that you get all the way home. If you are a believer, the Lord is going to see that you get all the way home. The, the Lord's going to be with you through the things of this life and going to take you all the way home. Now, if you're here today and you're not yet a believer, right, then I would encourage you to place your faith in the God who made you and the Christ who saved you and the Holy Spirit who will come into your life. You'll be born again by that Holy Spirit and you'll enter into relationship with him. All right, let's move on to Psalm 139. Very, very famous psalm. Let's look at verses one through two. It's another psalm of David. And we read, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. And so what we have here is, we think is really God's omniscience. God's omniscience means that God knows all things. And if you read theological books, there's all kinds of different things about this. And, you know, my personal view, and again, we can have a debate after service if you like. My personal belief is not only does God, has God always known all things, but I think God knows all possibilities. I believe that if, if you leave today and you decide to go out on the highway and turn right, that God already knows that you are going to turn right and all those things. But if possibility you were going to turn left, God knows all the possibilities that would have gone there. You know, and God knows all of these things. And actually the fact that God knows all these things and still loves us should give us great comfort. It's a great encouragement to understand that God knows everything about you, past, present, and future, and yet still today wants to have a relationship with you. Because if anybody in our lives knew absolutely everything about us, 
every thought we've ever thought, everything we've ever done, they're probably not going to want to hang out with us. And if we knew everything that they'd ever thought, we wouldn't want to hang out with them. And so the reality is, God is the only one who can handle that knowledge and still want to have relationship with us. It's a wonderful thing. So verses, again, verses one and two, God knows our sitting down, our rising up, every thought we think, and again, he still loves us. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing to consider, to contemplate. Verse three, you comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Very important. None of our ways are unknown to him, okay? So I understand why some people do it, and we all do it, because we're limited people. But sometimes when we pray, we inform God about all these things. He already knew. <laughs> Lord, I, it was Tuesday, or, or maybe it was Monday, and such. He, he knows already. You don't have to get all those things down. But the fact of the matter is God knows all of our ways, all of our steps, all of our paths, and that should be an encouragement to us. I'm going to give you some other verses that speak about this subject. Psalm 37, verses 23 and 24 say this, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. I want to break that down for just a minute. The steps of a good man, it speaks of a person who's walking with the Lord, that God orders those steps. That, that though you're making choices, God is, is still somehow ordering those at the same time. And it says that God delights in our way. So if you're a believer, and even though you're trying to walk with the Lord, you kind of stumble through it, God still delights in that. Think about, you know, you think about a young child who's learning to walk, you know, and that, that young child is taking a few steps and falling down. Hopefully the parent's not like, well, that stunk. Two steps? Are you kidding me? You know, that kind of, that shouldn't be the attitude toward that young child. Instead, you should be rejoicing in that. And then you realize as that child matures, they're going to take more steps and better steps. And one day they're going to run. So the Lord, if we're walking with him, even as we stumble, the Lord is pleased with us because it's part of the process. He wants to grow us, mature us, and help us to walk further. Though we fall in our walking, it says we shall not be utterly cast down. Why? Because the Lord upholds him with his hand. The Lord doesn't lose his people. And so it's very, very important for us to understand God is for me in this walk. God is ordering this walk. God is upholding me in this walk. It's not like God's waiting in heaven and we're just left on our own, to our own devices and he's like, well, you, you better get here somehow, right? That's not how he does things. He's with us all along the way. And then another verse that I, I love that speaks about this, this walking with the Lord, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 24, very, very interesting verse. It says this, a man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? I love that. A man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? In other words, as we look at our lives and, and the steps that we're on and the path that we're on, oftentimes we're going to think, where is this thing going? What's happening? How is this all going to work out? Things didn't turn out the way that I thought they were. I'm not in the place that I thought I was going to be. These relationships aren't exactly what I was expecting. But the, the scriptures already tell us, well, you're not going to understand your own way. Because the Lord's ordering it for his desired end, so it's not for you to know how it's all going to end up. It's up to you, it's up to me to trust the Lord, 
to just trust him daily, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to us. All right, let's move on to verse four. David writes, for there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows what we're going to say before we say it. God knows what we're going to say before we say it. And if you probably had this experience as a believer, the Holy Spirit knows what's coming next and just kind of puts his hand on your shoulder. Let's not say that. <laughs> let, let's, let's not go there. Let's let that thing stop. And, and so, so it, it's, it's important for us to understand this. Why? What's, what's, what's comforting about all these things? God knows everything there is to know about you and still loves you. Okay, please take that to heart. This is not just something to say on a Sunday morning in this room and then go out and kind of live real life. This is something for you to take to heart. God knows absolutely everything about me, every high, every low, every word, every deed, every thought, and still wants to have a relationship with me. Not only in this life, but he's also set up a system so that I would have a relationship with him for always, forever. And I, I say that not to pump you up, but I say this to encourage you, to strengthen you as you go through the difficulties of this life, realizing no matter what's going on around me, God loves me and he, he wants to spend forever with me. He wants to be with me. Let's continue on to verse five. It says, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Now this, you know, we, it's often talked about, you know, in kind of Christian comedians about like, I wish God would do something better than a hedge around me, you know, uh, because it seems like people can get through. Uh, but the idea here of this hedging behind and before is God's protective care. It's this idea that, that God is with us. God is protecting us. Sometimes it may not feel like it, right? Sometimes it may feel like, man, wait, I, wish, I wish God would put up a brick wall instead of a chain link fence because all things are coming through, right? But the reality is God's protecting us for his purposes. He's going to take us all the way home. Verse six, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Okay, so as we kind of put together verses one through six, really about God's omniscience, it's beyond our understanding. And I've read a lot of books and I've heard a lot of sermons about guys trying to kind of go with God's omniscience and God's omnipotence and, and man's free will and all these things. And what I found out to a man is none of them really know what they're talking about. <laughs> Not a single person has it figured out because we're already told it's beyond our understanding. It's higher than we can do. So what's our response to it is not to write another book. Our response to it is, is to, to just lead us into wonder with God and the worship of God. Is to say, Lord, I don't know how this works out. I can't put all these pieces together. It's too high for me. But what I can do is I can worship you. What I can do is walk in obedience to you. What I can do is do what you've called me to do and live my life and spend it for you. Now we move from God's omniscience now to God's omnipresence. As we start in verse seven, notice where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, or Sheol, it speaks of the grave, says, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So there's nowhere we can go that God isn't there. Nowhere we can go that God isn't there. You know, it's, it's a second semester, you know, at, at school and seniors are kind of, a lot of them are, are kind of wringing their hands about where they're going to go to college. You know, and just this place and where will I be accepted. But here's the good news. 
whatever city they end up in, guess what? God's already there. They go to College Station, God's there. They go to Dallas, God's there. They go to Laredo, God's there. They, wherever it is, God is already there. And that's an encouragement. It's something that, that I got to see, you know, with my family over the, 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 when we got to go to Europe for a couple of weeks. You know, I'm, I've always been a person who's real nervous and don't want to go traveling. And, and what I saw is, is, guess what? God's in Scotland. <laughs> and God's in England. And God's in Portugal. And God's in Spain. And everywhere we went, surprise, surprise, God was already there. And so that's a, that should be a great encouragement to us. I, I love the way it's put in Jeremiah. I'll read it. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24. God says this, Am I a God near at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord. He's everywhere. And that's why for us, and we've been doing it for you know, 20 years now, we can have church in a former woman's clothing store. <laughs> Because God is here. God's willing to be here. And, and so that, that brings great encouragement. Wherever I go, God is there, and I can trust him in the midst of it. All right, I want to reread the, um, Psalm 139, verse 10 again. Notice it says, Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. And, and so, a reminder, God is able to lead and uphold no matter where we might be. No matter where we might be, God is able to lead in that place. God is able to uphold in that place. All right, verses 11 and 12 says, If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be a light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Okay, so the big idea of these verses is there's no hiding from God. Okay, you can't play hide and seek with God. <laughs> He already knows where you are, always, okay? And so whenever, you know, people say, well, what about in the garden, you know? And, and God said to, to Adam, where are you? It's not because Adam was really stealthy, okay? It was because God was desiring to draw Adam out. God was, it's like those videos you've seen where the mom asks the little kid, did you eat all the Oreos? <laughs> and the kid has Oreos all over their face. No, yeah, the, the, the mom knows the reality. She's just trying to draw the kid out. Okay, so for you and I, we can't hide from the Lord. So there's no point to it. There's no point in going after secret sins. There's, there's no point in engaging in these things and saying, well, I could hide it from so-and-so. You can't hide from the only one who really matters, and that's God. So because of that, just don't go into it. Just don't, don't, don't do it. It's, there's no point in that. There's no future in that. God sees everything. We're told in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, that there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And, and so the, the safest place to be, the easiest place to be, is just to, to, to seek to um, confess sin as soon as you commit it, um, to, to try to just keep an open book between you and everybody else so that you won't have to give an account of it later. Just give an account of it now, stay out of that trouble, and you can have a free and easy relationship with the Lord. All right, let's look at verses 13 through 15 now. It says, you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. 
So David here is using some, you know, figurative language. He obviously says the, the lowest parts of the earth. It's actually speaking of his mother's womb. And, and so he's using some figurative language here. But, but what I want to take from verses 13 through 15 is a reminder that God is the creator of people. Okay, people have value because God created them. Because God is the creator of people. Okay, second thing here is life begins at conception. Life does not begin at some arbitrary thing because people pass some laws and say, it's okay to kill this child if it's not this old, but, but we can kill the child if it's this old. No, that's not allowed. The fact of the matter is, as soon as that sperm and egg come together, that's life. And God has brought that together. So life begins at conception. So God's the creator of people. Life begins at conception. Third thing here we see is life is valuable. Life is valuable. We, we look at, it, at the, the imagery that David uses, there's this thoughtfulness here. There's this, this crafting together here. And, and how does this you know, all work out? How does God do that? You know, how does God work with the biology and yet just still create? I, I don't know. And you don't know. But the fact of the matter is life is valuable. But because culture has gotten away from who God is as creator, from what his word has to say, they do all kinds of horrible things that have severe consequences for all involved. But if we just get back to the word of God with an undivided heart and just say, okay, this is the truth of it, then all of a sudden these, these issues are cleared up for us. Verse 16, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. And so this really, again, speaks to God's omniscience, right? That God knows all of our days, that God has a purpose and plan for our days. But at the same time, we have a choice to participate in that plan. You see, some people would read verse 16 and say, well, there it is, it's fatalism, right? All my days were written before there are any of them. But that's not a biblical concept. Because though all our days are written beforehand, the scriptures constantly say to us, make a choice. Do this thing and not that thing. And so, so how is it? is it? Is it God's sovereignty or is it man's free will? Yes. It's both. Both of those. God is working both sides of the equation. I want to remind you of just one kind of uh, um, incident in this realm, and it's Matthew 23, verse 37. It's the, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, and we see that Jesus had a desire for these people. He had a plan, a purpose for them, and they refused that plan or purpose. He says to them, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So please understand, God has all your days written in a book, but you know what? You have a choice of how you're going to participate in those days. God has a purpose and a plan for good and not for evil. He to give you a future and a hope. God has that for you, but you and I have a choice. Are we going to participate in that? Are we going to step into that? Are we going to do what he asked us to do? Or are we going to kind of take the book into our own hands, do our own thing, and not live up to what he's called us to? This leads us into verses 17 and 18. Notice, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. This is radical, but God thinks about you more than you think about you. 
God thinks about you more than you think about you. Let's be honest. We, we don't think about anybody as much as we think about ourselves, right? And, and that's just part of how it is, right? I don't, hopefully, I don't need to think about, you know, I wonder if he's brushed his teeth today. You need to be thinking about that, right? You need to be doing that thing. But however much you think about yourself, God thinks about you more. And, and, and I want to have you turn to Jeremiah 29 for just a minute. So turn forward a bit to Jeremiah 29. Because there's a, there's a verse in Jeremiah 29 that's often uh, used by believers. And, and then there's, there's pushback, though. Jeremiah 29, 11, But I want to give you a little context. It's Jeremiah 29. We're going to look at verses 10 through 14. Because some Christians have been uh, kind of bullied into not using Jeremiah 29, 11. They say, oh, you're using out of context and this kind of stuff. I, I just want to give you some context. God is giving Jeremiah a letter to the captives in Babylon. And basically saying, even though you guys are going to be captives, guess what? I still love you. I still have a purpose and a plan for you. So I believe there's application for you and I and how God thinks about us because we know that Christ gave his, uh, sorry, that, that the Father gave Christ to die for us. So if God gave us that greatest gift that he would sacrifice his son for our sakes, I would argue that at least in principle, we can take what's here in Jeremiah 29. If God gave his son to die so that you and I can be with him, then I'm pretty sure God has a future and a purpose for us. God has a plan for us. And so I just want to read these verses. I think they're beautiful. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. Thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. I'm going to argue that verses 10 through 14 there, that they have application for all of us. I'm going to argue that you can bring those to a person who's not yet a believer, who's in captivity to their sin, and say, this is the heart of God for you. This is, this is what he wants. So I would encourage you, please mark that place in your Bible. Think about that place. Come back to it. So when you feel in a low place, and I don't know if God really loves me, and I don't know if, what his heart is toward me, I don't know about his character and his nature in the midst of this, come back to this. This is God's heart for you. He, he wants to be found by you. He wants to be near you. He wants to be with you. He wants you to be encouraged that he does have a future and hope for you. Let's turn back to Psalm 139, and we'll look at verses 19 through 22 here. It says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, when they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. And so we look at this, and we have to also remind ourselves of who David is. Well, David's a king, and you're a king And especially in those days, there's a lot of hostile enemies coming against you. There's always a threat of war. There's all of those things. And so David had many enemies, and he is ready for judgment to be passed on them. 
He's ready for God to take them down. That's his heart. So again, there's that tension for us. For us as New Testament believers, love your enemies, yes, but also God's final judgment is a good thing. When God finally judges the unrepentant, that is a righteous thing. It's not like judgment is plan B. God is fully good in his judgment. Anyone can escape that judgment if they'll place their faith in Christ. But we also, uh, hopefully you look forward to that day when sin will be no more. Well, wickedness will be no more. Where, where things will be in such a way that in the new heaven and the new earth, the gates are always open in the new Jerusalem because there's nothing to worry about anymore. There's no more danger anymore. So I think that's some of the heart that we see here from David is, is wanting to enjoy the peace of God as his enemies are put down. Verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Beautiful verses, great verses to pray, to really ask God to search your soul. God, search my soul See whatever things in me are not right, not good, bringing me down, kind of causing trouble, and remove that from me. Cleanse me, redirect me, purify my heart. A wonderful, wonderful thing. It ties to what we read in Psalm 119, verse 133, that says, Direct my steps by your word, and let no iniquity have dominion over me. So it's good for us to pray that, is to ask God, Hey, I'm going to open up the doors of my heart. You search, you look. Anything in there, any desire that's not of you, remove that from me so that I can walk closely with you. All right, we'll stop there for today. And as we close, I just want to leave you with three takeaways from this study. Number one is that an undivided heart simplifies life. If you want to simplify your life, if I want to simplify my life, then, then just, just be undivided. Just say, you know what? I've already made my decision I've already cast my lot with the Lord. I'm just going to obey him no matter what. Leave the consequences to him. Number two, let's be willing to praise the Lord before our fellow human beings. And again, praising the Lord doesn't necessarily mean singing songs before them. What it means is I, I'm, I'm going to obey the Lord. I'm going to witness um, boldly before the Lord um, in, in their presence. I, I'm just going to do what he asked me to do. I'm going to trust that he'll work that out. And then thirdly and finally, remember that God created you to be with him. God, God didn't create you primarily so that you can be successfully, successful financially or so you can make a name for yourself or this, that, and the other. The, the, the most important thing God created you for is to be in relationship with him. That's what he wants. That's what he desires today. That's what he's going to desire tomorrow. That's what he's desired from you every day of your life. That's what he's going to desire from you for every day in eternity. And so if we can orient our lives about this, is that God loves me and he wants to be in relationship with me, it's going to allow us to, to really keep the main things the main things. Let's pray.